one weird thing about the black hole is your listeners may be familiar with the idea of falling into a black hole and getting spaghettified. Mm -hmm. Technical yeah. term, spaghettification. And the reason for that is if you have a black hole, if you turn the sun into a black hole, if you squeeze it down, so you had a black hole, the mass of the sun, it ends up being about a mile across. And the gravity is super strong mm -hmm. at the edge of the black hole. You squeeze all the sun down into a thing, a million mile across star down into a mile across. And, but more importantly, the gravity is changing really rapidly. It's dropping off really mm -hmm. fast. And so as you fall towards the black hole, say you're falling feet first, pretty soon, well before you get to the black hole, your feet are traveling a thousand miles an hour faster than your head, which will not be good for you. We're back for another episode of the Cold Star Project. Our topic is space astrophysics. I'm excited to have Jonathan McDowell here, who is a referral. I was told to come get you, Jonathan. And uh, you are a PhD. You are, I'm going to list a few things here for the other screen, astrophysicist at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. Since uh, 1989, you've been the author and editor of uh, your own website, Jonathan's Space Report, hosted on Jonathan's Space page. I mean, the internet was a little different animal back then, right? A website back then. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I mean, folks, this is significant enough to warrant its own Wikipedia article, so it's kind of a big deal. Uh, you have a main belt asteroid named after you, number 4589 McDowell, named after you in 93. And uh, another thing that I found out while I was researching is you've been a contributor, or were a contributor to Sky and, uh, Sky and Telescope magazine from 1993 to 2010. So when you get into something, you really commit to it. So it is Christmas Eve day. I appreciate you picking this time and, and showing up because last week, for example, I had three out of my four guests go, eh, can't make it. So... This has been a much better week yeah. for uh, for recording. So thanks for being here. Try and show up, yeah. All right. <laughs> okay. Well, Dr. McDowell, let's begin with the, the Chandra X-ray Center. This is the Chandra spacecraft. Is something that doesn't get as much media attention as the Hubble telescope, you know. Um, and I went to the website and checked it out. There's a lot of beautiful images there. If people want to, I'll put that in the notes a link to it. It's been orbit for 20 years. It's at an orbit ridiculously high up compared to the satellites we're used to, like 86,500 miles, right, flying around up there. It just, uh, for comparison, the ISS orbits at 260 miles. So, folks, this thing is way up there. And the reason for that is the Earth is busy absorbing X-rays, and uh, we want to capture those. So, tell us about the, the Chandra spacecraft and your involvement with it, how has it been, uh, you know, after performing for 20 years, how's it doing? Well, it's doing great. And, you know, we're actually hoping it was a five-year mission, right? Uh -huh. All good Star Trek's last five years, and the really good ones get renewed. So uh, we, we've been uh, uh, just super happy with the performance of the spacecraft, uh, and we're hoping for another 10 years. Uh, and so, you know, it's showing its age. I mean, 20 years in yeah. spacecraft years is, is um, uh, you know, sort of like dog years, right? They don't, they don't normally last this long. So, <clears throat> um, so, like all of us who started off the mission young and sprightly, uh, it's starting to creak a little. And uh, uh, we have some issues with thermal insulation where some bits are getting too hot, some bits are getting too cold, the nice shiny, if you see pictures of Chandra, you'll see as this nice silvery shiny insulation that now is probably like brown and cracked. Mm. Um, and there's some gunk that's building up on the main camera. There's probably only a few atoms thick, but it's enough 
to reduce our sensitivity in some x-ray colors, but not in others. And, and so we're doing great science. We, we, there's a lot of demand. Astronomers around the world use the spacecraft. And, and my job is to help those astronomers uh, uh, make, sure they, make sure they have the software they need to do the mm. data analysis. Okay. What, if, if you had the ability to upgrade Chandra right now and, and put a new version of it into orbit or go up there and pop some components out and put them in, um, what, what do you believe would happen? Would there be any advantages? Yeah, well, funnily enough, <clears throat> we have been thinking about this. Uh, not so much for going out and repairing Chandra mm -hmm. because that's, that, that in the high orbit it's in. Very that's expensive. Not easy. Um, <laughs> Uh, I mean, in the in ten years from now, maybe you could do that with Orion, blah blah. But but uh, um, so instead, we're looking at the next mission, uh, which we're calling Lynx. Hmm. X for like you know they're being have an X in it and it's sharp eyed, and uh, and so uh, the main difference with Lynx would be that that Chandra has the the thing that was special about Chandra was that compared to earlier X ray telescopes, uh, it had much sharper vision. Hmm. So why do you need, let me, let me just, you know, rewind a minute and, yeah. and go, why on earth would you need an X-ray telescope? Isn't Hubble good enough for everything, right? And, and no, because uh, we see things that Hubble can't see. And in particular, whenever things go badly wrong in the universe, uh, you get matter at a million degrees because you have a supernova explosion. Uh, you, you have very hot matter because uh, it's falling into a black hole and being torn apart. Uh, then the thing becomes entirely transparent to human eyes, but glows really brightly in X-rays. Uh, and so you, you'll completely miss these things if you just have a visible light telescope. So you need the X-ray telescope to see the really cool, weird stuff. It's like, you know, only 10% of the stuff, but it's the interesting stuff, right? right? And, and so we had X-ray telescopes before, but, but their, their eyesight was pretty blurry. Um, like, you know, okay. And so, <laughs> so, uh, um, Chandra is so much better, but it's only really, really good right in the middle of its field of view. Hmm. And it, the vision gets a little blurry toward the outside, and that makes it less efficient at looking at large areas of sky. So what we want is something that's as sharp-eyed as Chandra, but over a wider field of view and with better color resolution. So roughly speaking, we, we talk about spectral resolution. So every time we take a picture with Chandra, we get a spectrum in every pixel. That's to say we have many colors that we're measuring at once. And, and that's critical for understanding the physics of what's going on in these distant objects. Uh, and so we have maybe uh, 200 colors right now. Uh, that's probably over overestimate. In, in the normal pictures, we have 10 colors. Uh, and we want to go to millions of colors. And so uh, uh, that'll give us the ability to, to really uh, not just, for example, measure what elements are in an exploding star, but measure uh, how fast the gas is moving in different parts of the explosion uh, using Doppler shift measurements and so on. And so, so, uh, so there's a lot of advances that we know how to build if you'll just, you know, if you've got a billion dollars or so you can <laughs> shell over for us. Uh, and, and so we're putting that in, in competition with some other really cool projects like Louvoir that are that NASA is going to be reviewing in the next few years to decide what big mission they're going to be building in the for the 2030s. Hmm. Okay. So this is yeah, you know, long-term strategic planning. What kind of assets do we need? Yeah, I love exactly. the 
the 256 color era, you know, it brings me back to having a Commodore 64 in the 80s. <laughs> right, exactly. So you understand why we said it, more, yeah. right? Right. <laughs> it's still it. a lot more than we ever had before in x-rays, right? Um, and so, but, but, uh, but we need more. So, mm -hmm. so um, Chandra's done fantastic science. is going to do more fantastic science. But we're ready now to take the next step. And we've been ready for a while. Uh, and unfortunately, because other missions have sort of soaked up the budget, um, there with with overruns and so on, there are um, there, there hasn't been an opportunity to have a replacement for Chandra, uh, and we're you know so really we're we're trying to nurse the spacecraft along to not die because mm -hmm. uh, right by now we should have had a Chandra two up and we don't because it's so expensive because it's together. expensive yeah 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 a billion here a billion there as they say <laughs> very pretty soon you're talking about real money right, right. Um, but but uh, that's the old washington joke um, but uh, uh it's it's not as expensive as a lot of the flagship missions that are being considered now mm-hmm yeah, and I remember Carl Sagan way back uh, saying, you know, hey, if we would just get rid of one destroyer in the United States, oh, maybe we'd be yeah. able to fund uh, a ridiculous number of, of NASA missions. So, so let's see. With the X-ray telescope, we're still seeing through time. That imagery is being soaked up by a sensor, uh, yeah. like a regular camera, but then it's being interpreted by a computer as to a, a possible range of colors. Is that right? Right. Well, that's what you're. That's what you do in visible light cameras yes. now, right? That's what your cell phone does. Mm -hmm. It's it light travels at the speed of light. It hits your sensor. Mm -hmm. It gets recorded digitally, and then it, it gets turned into like a JPEG or something, right. right? And and the computer displays it for you, maps those numbers to colors, and so the trick is that instead of mapping the number to the actual color which we can't do because mm -hmm. uh, it wouldn't be very good for you. If I, if I showed you an x-ray picture, um, it would just look black to you and you'd get cancer. Hmm. So, so instead we, <laughs> no, <yeah>. thumbs down. <laughs> so, so instead we shift the x-ray colors down in software to be visible colors so that we can see them. And the way I think of it is, so you know that color in light, right, is like pitch in music. Mm. Uh, blue is a high-pitched color and red is a low-pitched color. Mm. And so, um, and so, and x-rays are like super, super high-pitched. They're many octaves up the scale beyond what we can see here, right? And, and so I think of representing our x-ray data in visible light as playing the same tune Mm. but in the key of visible. Okay. All right. And I have not studied X-ray travel speed at all. Is it, is oh, it well, X-rays are faster? Just yeah. And so they travel at the speed of light. Speed of light. Same light. thing. Okay. Good. Yeah. They're just the same thing. They're just a different... And, and, you know, radio waves are light too, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they're a very uh, <laughs> low-frequency yeah. color. And so if you were to take your radio dial and tune, well, okay, you, you just use Spotify now, but, but, but if you still had <laughs> right the radio with a dial and you, you like turn the dial from you know, 90.9 .9 NPR up through different frequencies, right? When you got to um, uh, about 90 million point nine, <laughs> you would actually be tuning invisible light. And when you got to uh, 90 billion point nine, <laughs> you would be you you would be tuning in X-ray light, and so it's just different colors of light, 
and and uh, and we think of them as different things mm-hmm. for two reasons one because we can't see outside this very narrow band right two because you need different technologies to capture the different kinds of light but the mm-hmm. light itself is it's just all the same stuff it's just a big question of how much you stretch it what its wavelength is right that would be a great explanation for the novices who run into here okay let's move on to um i i remember reading in your in I think it was maybe the Wikipedia article on you uh, early in your scientific and educational career, you went through this experience where you were interested in studying something that you couldn't quite measure. And then it turned out to not be the way you thought it was. And you thought, okay, that's it. I'm going to do not an about face here, but I'm going to change direction a little bit and rely on and explore things that I can actually measure. And yet dark matter has been a major focus of yours through the years. And so I'm like, okay, well, mm, how do these reconcile, right? How do you measure dark matter and what have you learned about it? Yeah, by theoretical astrophysicist standards, dark matter is like absolutely solid. And, mm. and, uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, you can absolutely measure it. You see it's gra- you, the effect it has on the things around it. Mm. Uh, and, and so we can see we have sophisticated techniques now to measure how the invisible matter bends the light, for example, of things behind it so we can we can measure how much is there uh and we can see how things orbiting it uh are affected by it so so it's absolutely there uh and um uh you know there are plenty of things like x-rays you can't see right but Mm -hmm. you know they're there and uh and so so i think just the fact that it's invisible and dark matter is really you know it's a it's a misnomer it's really transparent Mm -hmm. matter okay um, uh, it doesn't interact with light, uh, but this transparent stuff, um, just because it's transparent doesn't mean it ain't there and we can measure it. We can measure its effects. So, you know, in my early, uh, so the, the, the quote you had was a little bit tongue in cheek. It mm. was, um, you know, that, that, yeah. So for my thesis, I was working on hypothetical stars, uh, in the early universe that went bang long ago and might have made the sky glow the present day and, and, and things like that. And the, the question was, can you rule out the possibility that the universe is full of big black holes that, mm. that were made by stars in the early universe that went bang very early on? And, and, and could that be the dark matter? And so, um, but you know, it's, it's very hard to get a handle on that because uh, they're you know, beyond where I, even our forthcoming telescopes can see. Mm. Uh, and, um, and plus they probably didn't exist. I mean, my, the, the result I, I, I got was that if they did exist, you would in fact be able to rule them out with these indirect arguments. So, so I thought, you know, we know I like black holes, but I, I have looked at a lot of dark matter, but really black holes have sort of been almost more the focus of my career. Mm. Uh, and, and, um, and so, you know, we know that black holes exist. Uh, there's one in the center of every galaxy, an enormous one, and there's bunches scattered around. Uh, and so, you know, maybe I'll study those in like near, more nearby. Um, you know, only come in to maybe um, looking at the universe six billion years ago instead of eleven billion years ago, and then, you know, it'd be a bit more more parochial. Uh, and and so so I've been, but I've I've dabbled a lot because I I sort of have. I'm a bit ADD. I have astronomical deficit disorder. I can't focus on one subtopic for more than a few years. So, so I've played with asteroids. I've played with stars. I've played with galaxies. All right. And so dark matter 
is a real thing. You can see its effects and, and you've spent some time gathering data about it. Yeah, uh, and, and so um, uh, most of my work that was directly on dark matter was a while ago and it was more in, in terms of thinking about what effects it would have and then mm -hmm. going, okay, so you should go look over here. Okay. Um, and uh, or ruling out certain kinds of dark matter because uh, if you did that, um, for example, if you had too many big black holes in the galaxy, uh, they would be accreting matter and you would see them in certain mm -hmm. wavelengths. And, and so that sets a, a limit to how many black holes or big black holes around there there can be. And so you can say, okay, so that ain't the dark matter because they may be there, but they're not enough of them. Uh, and, and so arguments like that are, uh, and, and these sort of what we call in, in astronomy upper limits, uh, mm -hmm. results of like, okay, we had a crazy idea, but it can't be that, is actually a surprisingly large fraction of astronomy. Mm. It's like ruling out, you know, mm -hmm. the, lo loads of different crazy ideas to focus in on the ones that turn out not to be crazy after all. Mm -hmm. That makes sense, yeah. By, by ruling this out, we get part of the shape of the box. Yeah, so because you rule something right. out, it doesn't mean that your paper is a failure. It's actually mm -hmm. a contribution because, I like to think, because, <laughs> uh, uh, because you've like, okay, we don't have to bother going down that route again. Right. Okay. Well, let's move on to quasars then. That's been a topic that you've studied as well um, for quite some time. And I'm curious now, what can you say that's true about quasars and what, what does the public need to know about them? Right. Well, uh, so um, what's true about quasars is that they're much more important in the history of the universe than we realized 20 years ago. Uh, and so uh, what a quasar is, um, it's actually when you have a big black hole in the middle of a galaxy that is swallowing matter. Hmm. And of course, once the matter falls into a black hole, you can't see it famously, right? It's black. But on the way in, the gravity of the black hole is like ripping this matter hmm. apart. Uh, and um, it generates a lot of energy. The matter gets really hot puts out all kinds of light, including not x parenthetically x-rays. <laughs> and, uh, and so you can see it from a really long way away. Mm. Uh, in particular, the amount of radiation. So we're familiar with nuclear fusion. The sun shines by nuclear fusion. Over 10 billion years, the sun converts 0.1% of its mass into energy. Mm. By the one equation everyone knows, e equals mm. mc squared right? Uh, it says uh, mass gets converted into a little bit of mass creates a huge amount of energy. So the sun, a tiny part of the sun gets converted into energy over 10 billion years. And we, the earth intercepts a tiny part of that. And that's all the energy pretty much that we get on. Um, so it's an amazing amount, but a quasar doesn't just convert 0.1% of the mass of the sun into energy it convert uh, over 10 billion years, it converts 100% of the mass of the sun into energy every year. Hmm. <laughs> and so it is just enormously more energy than a star. And that's why you can see it a long way away. Uh, and, and so uh, it turns out that this squeezing of matter as it falls in a gravitational field is actually a more efficient way of converting mass to energy than nuclear fusion. Hmm. You could nuclear fusion. You get about you know percent out. Uh, it's a one percent. You know you you throw in ten tons and a tenth of a ton gets turned into energy. 
um, with, uh, with the quasar, you throw in 10 tons and five tons of it gets converted into energy and only five tons makes it down into the black hole. Hmm. And, and so it's, it's a hugely efficient way of, of turning gravity into energy, uh, right. turning gravity into light, essentially. Um, and so uh, one weird thing about the black hole is, so you may, your, your listeners may be familiar with the idea of falling into a black hole and getting spaghettified. Mm-hmm. Stretched. Yeah. term, spaghettification. And the reason for that is if you have a black hole, if you turn the sun into a black hole, if you squeeze it down, so you had a black hole, the mass of the sun, um, it ends up being about a mile across. And the gravity is super strong mm-hmm. at the edge of the black hole. You squeeze all the sun down into a thing, a million mile across star down into a mile across. And, but more importantly, the gravity is changing really rapidly. It's dropping off really fast. And so as you fall towards the black hole, say you're falling feet first, pretty soon, well before you get to the black hole, your feet are traveling a thousand miles an hour faster than your head, which will not be good for you. <laughs> All right, so that's, that's what stretches you out because there's more gravity at your feet. The gravity is noticeably changing between your head, your head and your, your, your feet. Um, now with the big black holes, what we call supermassive black holes that are, so the little black holes like, you know, only the mass of the sun uh, are like scattered around our galaxy. They're, they're the endpoints of stars, uh, of big stars. Um, but uh, the supermassive black holes, there's like one per galaxy, caveat. Usually, uh, and 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 they're instead of being the mass of our sun, they're a million to a billion times the mass of our sun, mm. and they're correspondingly bigger. The event horizon of the black hole, the mm. size of the black hole, instead of being a mile across, is the size of the Earth's orbit around the sun, like a hundred million miles mm. across. But what that means is that the gravity isn't changing so quickly; mm. it, it just scales up. So the, gra- the, the gravity, you don't get spaghettified until you're already well within the black hole mm. event horizon and it's way too late to write home. And so you can actually survive falling through the event horizon and experiencing mm. it. Um, and, and so that's the cool thing about supermassive black holes is you could get quite close to them without dying. Mm. Um, but then after a certain point, you're through the event horizon right. and you're going to die because you know, it'll take you a few hours to, to hit the, the center. But, um, uh, uh, but the thing about a black hole, so the other thing you want to know about black holes, I'm sw- you know, quasars are basically black mm-hmm. holes with yeah. a lot of bad stuff happening around them, right? Um, as you go into the black hole, your direct, the geometry changes. Mm. Euclid no longer applies. Left and right start going behind you, the amount of direction into the black hole becomes more than the amount of directions out until you pass the horizon, every which way you turn is in. Hmm. And that's why you can't get out of the black hole Hmm. is that there is no way out literally. And it's actually literally in the math that space becomes like time. The normal difference between space and time is in space, I can go forward, I can go back in time. I can get to tomorrow, but I can't get to yesterday, sadly. And, and so, um, absent a TARDIS, I, I'm stuck in that one direction in time. And the inside of a black hole is exactly that, mathematically. Mm. It's that your direction into the black hole has become the future. And so, uh, there's a lot, bunch of other cool, cool things about that, but it doesn't matter because 
if you get into the black hole, you're not coming out. So, so, so you can't test that. But outside the black hole, you can get back, light can get out. Uh, and so we can study the regions near the black hole in actually quite some detail. Uh, and, uh, and so that's, uh, that's what we do. That's why we're interested in quasars because it tests, it tests the laws of physics, which are the rules of the game that we live by every day on this world. And it kind of tests them to breaking point, right? right? It puts them in a really extreme situation and we can watch nature do that experiment and get a better understanding of the laws of physics. Okay. Is there any interest in looking into that more efficient method of transferring matter into energy uh, as something well, we could right. reproduce? Yeah. yeah, the only snag with it is yeah. it requires um, uh, a black at hole least generator sun, and preferably millions of times the mass of the sun. So it's mm -hmm. not something you really have in your living room. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't see any way that uh, um, that can be, you know, parlayed into something for use on Earth. Right, uh, or even in the, in the galaxy somewhere, right? Yeah, this I mean, a super advanced civilization might be playing with stars and smashing them together right. or something to do this. Yes, that, that you could imagine that. I think we're ways off. I, I <laughs> Quite a ways, yeah. Just yet. Right. Let's get good at leaving the solar system <laughs> first. <laughs> yeah, right. Traveling around with it. Yeah, this is something where the environmental impact assessment for, for a machine that can destroy <laughs> whole galaxies is like not in my backyard. Thank right. You. <laughs> Do it over there. <laughs> All right. Hey, this is Jason Canigan, the host of the Cold Star Project and the founder of Cold Star Technologies. I've decided to do something new. I've started doing daily update videos on who I met and what I learned the previous day in the space field. And it's a great sort of follow me thing. You can learn what I learn. I'm meeting a heck of a lot of people and learning a lot of things really fast. And the space field is really disparate. There are tons of nooks and crannies to go into and explore from legal, operational, you know, regulatory compliance and gosh the end customer who would have thought about that right so you can sign up for this if you go to coldstartech.com slash msb that's short for make space boring the mission we're on then you can sign up and in your email you will get a daily notification that the new video has been posted I'm also thinking about doing some branded mini courses and summarizing papers as uh, I'm able to. So those will be some goodies that are in there as well. So if you're interested in that, go to coldstartech.com MSB and join us on the mission to make space boring. Now back to the interview. Well, let's come back then to from from those grandiose ideas to something simple, the International Space Station. Uh, it's being considered for commercial ventures. You've had some ideas to talk about that. Uh, what's your opinion on that? Can the ISS even physically handle this kind of change? Oh, I mean, physically, yes, you could. You, if you had the money, mm -hmm. uh, you could do some useful commercial stuff on the ISS. What I don't, I don't see any way you can make a profit doing that. Hmm. Right. I mean, the ISS is incredibly expensive to run and the commercial experiments that are being done today on the ISS are getting a lot of that benefit for free. They're hmm. not being charged for the cargo ships, the astronauts, the maintenance and all, all, all of that. And so I th think if, if NASA and so the, the problem is hmm. this, that we have the ISS, but NASA wants to spend its budget on moon missions. And if it's going to spend its budget on moon missions, it can't afford to keep running the ISS. And so it's desperately looking for someone else to pay for it. 
but I just don't see it. I mean, I, 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 I think the amount of money that it would take to operate the ISS commercially um, is just insane from a commercial point of view. It, and and the, the profits you could imagine making from, from microgravity experiments don't come within orders of magnitude of justifying that. Now, that's not to say that one couldn't have a profitable LEO space station hmm. for commercial purposes if you architected it differently. But it would have to be a lot more bare bones, uh, uh, designed with cost efficiency in mind from day one. Um, and, uh, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not clear yet if that, that'll happen, but, uh, but that's more likely likely than having the ISS be self-sustaining commercial. Hmm, that's kind of a shame. And it's, uh, it really does make you wonder what's going to happen if the moon missions do go ahead, because yeah, I think, you're saying I think, they can't do both. I, I don't, so, well, unless, again, you kind of cut back the defense budget by 1% mm -hmm. and, you know, increase NASA's budget by a huge factor. Uh, um, you know, so double NASA's budget and you can do it. But uh, um, otherwise, yeah, I, I think that ultimately they'll have to, some administration will have to bite the bullet and go, uh, uh, yeah, ISS is going in the ocean. And, and it may even not be up to them, maybe, I mean, because the Russians have the, have the rocket engine. So <laughs> that's the other issue with this commercialization thing, that, that it's an international space station. And so mm -hmm. the U.S. can't actually decide mm. unilaterally right. they can decide unilaterally that on the u.s segment they're going to do commercial stuff and then can rent it out but but they can't make sort of decisions about what orbit it's going to be in or without uh, uh international uh cooperation um and at some point russia or europe or japan are, are going to have one of the international partners meetings where they say no i'm sorry we're done it's time to retire the iss and mm. So it's not entirely up to you guys. Okay, more, <laughs> more hands in making that decision. All right, if, if folks, if you want data about space launches, Jonathan's space page is the place to go and that report. Uh, I followed you on Twitter for a while and you, are, uh, you pay a lot of attention to, to these launches, you're tweeting live updates, there's a lot of numbers and commentary on that, which I'm sure people appreciate. How much time does keeping track of and updating all that info take like every month? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to estimate. I, you know, a lot of it is I'm get, I've gotten very efficient at it because mm -hmm. I've been doing it for 40 years <laughs> uh, one way or another. And, and so um, I have a lot of background knowledge, which lets me not have to waste a lot of time figuring what's going on here. Right. Uh, and a lot of software that I use to analyze the orbits and things like that. So it's something that I do when I get home from work for an hour in the evening uh, to wind down, right? Mm. And and so it's nice because it doesn't have deadlines associated with it. No one's marking me kind of thing. So so it sort of, it lets my, my whizzing brain, right. you know, just sort of slow down eventually in a relaxed way. And, and, uh, and so, so it's, uh, so I spend probably, you know, an hour a day in the evening and then some time at weekends, uh, uh, working on it. And, um, it, it's, uh, it's been, uh, you know, I did it because I wanted to know this information. Mm -hmm. 
And I started sharing it, you know, as, as uh, we were getting a lot of space inquiries at the observatory mm. from the public that are, um, uh, is not really something that we do. And so the public affairs people kept asking me and to sort of fend them off, I started making this report uh, to go, okay, everything you're gonna to need to know about this week that you'll get phone calls about is in this report. And someone suggested, well, maybe, you know, one or two other people will be interested in this and you should uh, put it on, on, on the internet. And, uh, uh, you know, maybe three people in the world will wanna read it or something, you know, but it turns out, no, it turns out that uh, um, uh, several thousand people uh, uh, subscribe by email, I've got, 30,000 people following me on Twitter. So, so apparently there's an appetite out there for geeky level detail about our exploration of space. But that's not what motivates me. What motivates me is the historian 500 years from now mm -hmm. who wants to know what exactly happened in those pioneering early days of humanity's steps into space. And and I was frustrated because in the official histories of like NASA projects and so on, there's a lot of information about the politics of funding it hmm. and the design before launch, but they did a, tended to do a very poor job of actually saying what actually happened once the damn thing got off the pad. Hmm. And that's mostly because professional historians are trained to care about the people and not about the hardware. And I think what the hardware does is interesting because that's kind of the whole point of why you were doing it. Um, and, and so I set myself up with the job of, of, uh, uh, being the journal of record for what actually happened to the missions once they got launched. Okay. And I, I found that very amusing. I mean, you've got a, a giant reason why to be doing this, but it's, you know, for, for other people looking in on that, oh my gosh, it's such a huge project in an hour a day and it's like a exercise commitment or something, you know, uh, and for you, it's, it, well, Jonathan's relaxing doing this, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty, pretty funny difference oh, in perspective. You, this or a NASA management meeting, hmm. no competition. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, and I'm curious, what, what kind of connections and opportunities have come your way over the years because you've had this asset that you've been working on over here? Yeah, there have been a few. I mean, to say, you know, for me, the interest in getting connections and opportunities more to get more data for the report mm. uh, rather than from, for, you know, anything from me. Um, but uh, uh, I've, um, I've gotten to meet, you know, uh, a bunch of senior space program people. Uh, and uh, I've gotten, you know, sort of insider view of, of mm. some of the, these things. Uh, and uh, I did get one nice junket. I, I uh, Ariana's fast, very kindly, uh, uh, gave me a seat on their plane to one of their launches in Kourou. So that was an experience I'll never forget. Mm. And uh, uh, um, uh, definitely made me want to, uh, um, I was already covering the Ariane stuff in, pretty, in detail. This is the French, uh, well, European rocket provider. Uh, and so they have this fantastic base in the uh, the Amazon jungle, essentially. Uh, it's on, Except it's on the beach on the, Imagine you have a Caribbean beach, the Amazon jungle, and a hundred yards strip of France separating them. Hmm. And that's French Guiana. Uh, and so, you know, you go into uh, 
um, Kourou town and they have the boulangerie and the patisserie and all the sort of the Renault car dealership and all this stuff. It's very French. And, uh, but, but it's in this incredible uh, jungle beach, South American environment. Uh, and then you have rockets and launch pads and stuff. Mm. Which is cool. uh, and the French Foreign Legion Guard. Uh, mm. And and so uh, uh, so that was that was that was my uh, number one most amazing uh, uh, opportunity that came out. Of very cool, very cool. I'm uh, originally Canadian, so all those words made sense to me. <laughs> so that was fun. That was a surprise connection. You can't afford to be second best. You need to be first, and that requires speed. Now, if you're thinking that growth is supposed to be slow and steady. Frankly, the way I was taught back in the 90s in the operations management and business administration programs, you are too slow. We have to adapt. And in space, it's no different than anywhere else. People like to think they're special in space, and it is fun, all the stuff we get to work on. But business is business. The fundamentals nowadays are conservative growth is not good. You need to run as fast as you can and risk outstripping your supply lines, which means in our world, using up the capital that we've got. That's a risk. But there is no prize for second place. There certainly is no prize for third. If you want to scale operationally fast, come talk to us at Cold Star Tech. We are the process experts for scaling fast. Now back to the interview. Okay, I, let's finish up talking about uh, mega constellations and, and small sats. Uh, there's a comment in the Wikipedia article on you. Um, McDowell has long campaigned for U.S. compliance with the U.N. Convention on Registration of Outer Space Objects, 1975, and U.N. Resolution 1721B, 1961, which, of course, I went and looked up. And they linked to uh, commentary that you had. But that was, this was about 20 years ago. And, of course, the Wikipedia article talks about it like it was yesterday, right? Well, I'm still campaigning about it. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, and, in fact, I made us think about the fact that, you know, uh, earlier this year, the, the U.S. announced that they had deployed secretly some mm. satellites from the X-37, which is blatantly mm. against international law obligations that they have. They're meant mm. to register them with the UN and, and stuff. So, uh, so yeah, I, one of, I mean, I believe strongly that transparency in space operations is uh, actually beneficial to international security. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, there, there's, um, uh, you know, and I, I actually, I have this quaint belief, you know, that the US should actually obey international law once in a while. Uh, and and take treaties seriously and things like that. I know it's unfashionable, but 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 that's where I am. So um, uh, and so yeah, I, I published a paper last year, uh, which I call the Hall of Shame paper, in which I sort of listed the various satellites from various countries that have not been registered with the UN. Mm. So it's about you know five to seven percent of all satellites never got registered right. with one or another. And often, surprisingly, it's like turf wars. It's like who, which country is actually responsible for this satellite? Because, you know, like, for example, um, the Hong Kong company, when Hong Kong went over from Britain to mm -hmm. China, was one in the middle that got missed <laughs> before mm -hmm. the registrations and stuff. And, and uh, or globalized companies where, you know, there's some discussion about whether this is really an American company or a British company or so, so 
in among all that, there's the very occasional naughty activity of hiding a secret military satellite by, by not registering it. And, mm. and uh, that's why we have to keep the whole thing kind of more, you know, clean up the whole thing so that people can't get away with that. Uh, that's, that's, that's my, uh, so, so, you know, as a result of trying, so I started making, let, let me wind back a bit. Mm -hmm. I started making a list of satellites. So, so when I was um, 12, I think, uh, I uh, was, uh, I came across James All the World's aircraft. Hmm. And in the back, it had a list of the satellites launched this year, which I meticulously copied out. And, uh, and then I, pretty soon I realized that actually that list wasn't such a great list that there were gaps in it hmm. uh, or, you know, it wasn't, wasn't hundred percent right. Uh, and so I started off trying to make a better list. Right. And so, you know, 40 years later, I have the best list. Uh, and, and so then that inadvertently just this sort of librarian bookkeeping anal kind of, uh, drive to, I want to know what's in space, uh, led me down this path to the policy side of things. Mm. Of, oh, actually there are good reasons of international peace and security, why it's important to have such a list. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, the, um, uh, and there are all kinds of policy implications. Uh, there's, there's the let's not put uh, nuclear weapons in space. There's the let's uh, control space debris and not have it ruin everything for everybody else. All these different kinds of policy issues that come in, that come, you know, really pretty directly out of trying to figure out what there is in space. Mm -hmm. and, and so that has, uh, um, uh, uh, and there are a lot of people, you know, so I've got, I've made friends with a bunch of space lawyers. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are kind of surprised that there is such a thing as a space yep. lawyer. Right? I'm doing the same thing. <laughs> yep. yeah. And, you know, they range from everything from like the people who, you know, if you have a communication satellite that you want to sell to some other company, right, that's going to need lawyers. Um, so that sort of everyday lawyering kind of stuff mm -hmm. up to the sort of more constitutional law kind of international mm -hmm. law kind of thing of, of, uh, what should the Outer Space Treaty say? How should we mm -hmm. change it? So, so, so it's a vibrant uh, field of law. Um, and, but a lot of the people involved in it don't have a technical background. And so they mm -hmm. love having someone they can call up and, and have, mm -hmm. you know, do the orbit stuff for them, the technical stuff. So uh, I, I've been doing quite a bit of that and it's been a lot of fun and, and, and gets me out of, you know, gets me hanging with a different crowd than I would normally hang mm -hmm. with. Um, so, so, uh, uh, so I feel good about that and, uh, but it really does come very directly. All, all these policy issues come directly out of just the geeky, uh, bookkeeping that I've been <laughs> starting off trying to do. Yeah, very, very interesting. So the guys like, uh, Dr. Marie Baja, the space situational awareness guys and the space lawyers like Christopher Johnson at the Secure World Foundation, who, both who I've interviewed on this show. And I have a number of other space lawyer, uh, interviews coming out. Um, the, they all echo what you're saying and, and the simple vision that people need to to understand is um, satellites go up in similar orbits as these mega constellations and if there are resonant space objects up there that nobody knows about something is going to crash into them and that's going to create a problem <laughs> and then that right. is the sort of thing wars get started over so that's exactly <laughs> better right. be clear wars can get started over misunderstandings too mm -hmm. right? so, so having clarity is important and, and so the thing to understand about space, what makes it different 
from sort of international activities elsewhere is that if you're a satellite, you're traveling at uh, seven kilometers a second. So is that about five miles a second, something like that. And so several hundred miles a minute, mm-hmm. right? You go around the world in an hour and a half. And so uh, it's intrinsically good. And everyone's satellites is like crisscrossing and going everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's no American zone and Russian zone. You know, everyone's like mixed up and tra- things are happening very fast. And you're not over one country for more than a few minutes. And so trying to have, say, an American space law and a Russian space law just ain't going to cut it Hmm. because you're going to be switching jurisdictions too quickly to keep track. So so space is intrinsically global in that sense. And we have to tackle it as an international community. Hmm. Um, And uh, and the other thing about space is it's hard to hide because Mm -hmm. any decently sized satellite is uh, is visible in telescopes and if it's in low orbit it's visible to the naked eye uh and so a lot of the secrecy in particularly the u.s uh, military community around space um is a little sad really mm. because they're like oh we can't confirm if that satellite is uh is up there and that, uh, 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 i, yeah. see, it, I see an energy <laughs> trail <laughs> that bright thing going over there and that's it yeah. and, and so you know the, the, uh, there's a sort of a mindset in certain areas that by stamping secret on something, you can actually make it secret. Hmm. And you can't do that if, you, if everybody can actually see it. Uh, and, and so um, people have to just, I think people are starting to get over that now and realize, okay, okay, yeah, we don't need, we don't, and it's not actually buying a cent anything to make these things secret. Um, so we'll see, we'll see. Uh, um, but uh, so I, I'm, I'm mildly optimistic about that side of it. I'm concerned about the space traffic management because mm-hmm. these mega constellations are coming fast, right? right. And, and uh, we're gonna have many, many more satellites up there in the next few years. And the speed of regulatory change to keep up with that just ain't there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, and so, so it's gonna be a mess, folks. Uh, and, and I'm, I'm worried about that. Yeah. I, human beings seem to have to have an accident in order to make change happen in a, right. in a quick way. Right. And um, that's personally what I predict here. And hopefully smarter heads will prevail in the meantime. But Yeah, not optimistic. Yeah. Well, Dr. Jonathan McDowell, thanks for being our guest today. I'm going to post uh, links to your your, uh, website underneath there. And how else can people get a hold of you if they're like, hey, I I want to find out more or talk to you? What's the best way? Yeah, you know, if you Google Jonathan and space, you'll find me, right? And and, uh, so I'm out there on the internet. Talk to me on Twitter, uh, Planet4589 on Twitter. Uh, and uh, that's probably the easiest way to get me. Uh, yeah, I'm always happy to talk with uh, fans of Spain. Right. Very entertaining Twitter feed. Thanks for being here today. All right. Cheers. Cheers. You bet. <laughs>